0: Isaiah chapter nine, that's where we're going to be today. Isaiah chapter nine. Uh, Grayson read some of this verse, these verses last week in the worship service, and it was kind of a confirmation for me that this was definitely what God was directing me, pointing me towards for you today. And so what I want us to do today is simply this: I want us to take a look into the manger. Now, you've got to understand the, the context around which we see these verses and we see the book of Isaiah itself. Uh, he was writing nearly 800 years prior to the birth of Christ. He was writing about 100 years prior to the Babylonian captivity. And he was writing in a period when the Assyrians were basically sweeping across the region, uh, destroying, taking over, eating, anything in their path. They were advancing across uh, the continent and, and Israel was suffering because of them. Understanding their situation and their condition helps you realize what a shot in the arm of hope this prophecy must have been to the original hearers. You can just imagine that they have been uh, tormented by these Assyrians. They've, they've heard the Assyrians are coming. They're, they're, they're scared. They're worried. They're fried, frightened. Then they come, and they've been uh, beaten and battered, and some of their loved ones have probably been killed or, or captive. And so this prophecy comes and it's talking about this Messiah who would be their eternal king, would fulfill the covenant that God had made with King David. In the first part of Isaiah 9, he uses the remnant of Israel that had survived the devastation of the Assyrians' attack and removal of Israel's earthly king to lead into and point them toward the coming of the world's ultimate king. Then we see in Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, Jesus fulfilling some of this very prophecy from the beginning of Isaiah 9. Now, obviously, he fulfilled all the prophecy of all the prophets, but specifically here in verse 16 of Matthew 4, it says, The people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. That's quoting Isaiah 9 two. That should also call to our mind the, the, the psalm, the 23rd psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The same reference we see here. In Luke verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 78 and 79, it says, Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us. The dawn, y'all, y'all ever seen it break? Anybody been in the deer woods or something? You've been sitting in a tree and you're freezing to death? And you're praying, God, if I could get one little sliver of sunlight that could hit anywhere on my body, I'll take it. And then when the dawn breaks, what happens? It's like everything comes to life. You see everything. It's always darkest before the dawn. Why? Because dawn is that bright light. And that's what Luke is recording here. Verse 79, not only is it coming, the dawn from on high will visit us, but it will shine on those who live in darkness. And the shadow of death, there that phrase is again, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And then, of course, the beautiful words of Jesus in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In other words, if you put your faith in Christ, you confess Christ as Savior, you surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ, that dawn breaks in you. If you've never done that, you're walking in darkness. No matter what time of day, you are walking in darkness. So today, I want us to take a look into the manger. Now here's the thing. Here's the problem we encounter sometimes around this time of the year. Everything becomes about the little baby. Everything becomes the infant. And we we love that. But By the way, you know why we love that? Because Jesus is no threat to us as a baby in a manger. So we think. I've said it before and I'm going to remind you again today. That baby is not coming back. The suffering servant is not coming back. The Christ on the cross, the Christ in the tomb is not coming back. The king is coming. So I don't want us to look into the manger and see an infant. A little bundle of joy. Wrapped in swaddling clothes. I want us to look into the manger, and I want us to look at two things. I want us to see the king, and I want us to see the kingdom. I think it's important for us at this time of year not to focus on the infant, not to focus on the swaddling clothes and the manger, but to see the king. And to see the kingdom. Would you stand with me as we read Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7? Those of you visiting, thank you for coming. This is a strange thing, maybe for you, but we stand in honor to the public reading of the Word of God. Isaiah 9, beginning of verse 6. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be upon his shoulders. He will be named wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Would you pray with me? Father God, speak to us today through your word, through your spirit, through your flawed servant for the glory of the king. God, help us to hear your voice, help us to hear your words, help us to know your truth, and help us to follow it. We exalt our king this morning, and we pray this in his precious name, the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So first, let's look at the king. We're going to look at two things under this point. We're going to break this, the king down. We're going to look at two things, the gift and the government. First off, the gift. Obviously, the baby in that manger was a gift. It was the king of glory. It was a gift from God. He says a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us. This shows the humanity and deity of the Messiah kind of all at once. It encapsulates both of those concepts. The phrase for us uh, used in the beginning, a child will be born for us, means the Messiah would be a gift from God for Mankind. He is not a gift for God. He is not a gift for lost people. He is not a gift for rulers and governments and kingdoms. He is a gift for us. It is the greatest Christmas present ever given because it is God Himself giving us in bodily form His grace and mercy and forgiveness, the opportunity to have redemption from our sins. And then He says, and it's interesting to me that He uses this both you know these two phrases. A child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. Why why does he break it down? Because the for us means it would be for us, a gift from God. To us reflects the fact that Jesus will walk among us. That's a remarkable thing. Every other world religion tells you that you have to try to get to God. Only the true religion, Christianity, shows you how God got to you. Can I just give you some, some peace of mind this morning? If you're trying to get to God, quit. Stop it. It's a futile waste of your time and energy. You, on your own, in your own strength and by your own virtues, will never, can never get to the level of Almighty God. He's righteous and perfect and just and holy. And listen, friend, you ain't. I'm not. We can't get to God. God knew that, and so God came. To us in that manger, in that stable, from that virgin womb, God stepped out of his glory and stepped onto this earth because he knew that was the only way to get back in a right relationship, to get us back in a right relationship with him. Hebrews 4.15 reminds us we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are Underline this in your mind, if you're looking in your Bible, underline it there, yet. Tempted in every way, tempted in all manners as we are, yet without sin. See, there's the reason you can't get to God. No matter how good you are, and I'm not trying to bust any bubbles this morning, but you may be a really good person. Apart from Christ, that makes you somebody going to hell. You may be the nicest person in hell but hell is where you will find yourself nice or not, good or not without a relationship with Jesus Christ because he is the only one that can make you good to the level of reaching God's presence. He was tempted just like you and I are but he didn't sin. He never broke the covenant that God made with us. God made a covenant with us in the garden. He told Adam and Eve you can do anything you want. Eat anything you want but this one thing. And what did they do? It was like it was like a magnet. <laughs> eat anything else you want. Really, I can have any of this stuff? Yeah, but don't eat that. Ooh. And that's what your flesh does today. You may be sitting here and saying, Brother Kevin, I'm not going to be taking the blame from Adam and Eve. You don't have to. Your flesh will make you Adam and Eve. It will make you drawn to the things that God tells you not to touch. 2 Samuel 7.16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever. Luke 1, 32 and 33, you'll be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Luke 2, 10 and 11, where the angel comes and makes this proclamation. He says, don't be afraid. I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you. Look at that. There it is again. A Savior was born for you who is Messiah, the Lord. John 1:14, 1, one of my favorite verses, the word became flesh, and what did he do? He dwelt among us. You couldn't get to God, so God came to you. So that's the gift. The gift in the manger is that baby, is that embodiment of God himself, who came and lived a sinless life and died a sacrificial death and rose victorious over death, hell, and the grave. That's the gift. Number two, let's look at the government. This is an interesting statement apart from understanding the original context. The government will be upon his shoulders. Uh, how many of y'all here are, maybe, maybe this is you, you're working your first job. Anybody here working your first job? All right, nobody. Good analogy, Kev. How about this? <laughs> They don't all hit, Austin. I did, what can you say? Does anybody remember your first paycheck? All right. You remember when you got that paycheck, man, you were fired up. I can see Adam. I know Adam got that first paycheck. He's, the wheels, he's like, man, I'm going to get this and this and this. I'm about to be loaded. And you flip that paycheck open, you're like, man, who this FICA guy? I'm going to fight FICA. If I find him, I'm going to get him. Why? Because he took half my money. I understand that when we read the government be upon his shoulders, we feel like our government is upon ours. Now, by the way, let me just remind you, we got it really good compared to most countries in the world. Some of you young people, y'all see these people on the Internet saying we need to be like everybody else in other countries? Go. <laughs> I've been to some places over there where they want us to be like, I'll take a hard pass. I've seen the poverty that some of this stuff that they want us to go to leads to. No matter where you go, no matter what government structure you're under, ours is the best on earth because it's filled with humanity and people. It's still going to be bad, but it's better than most. You're going to feel the weight of the government, but that's really not what he's talking about. Listen, uh, government was a a burden, of course, and it's a burden now, but it was uh, referred to back in the day to be born on the back or shoulders and was sometimes symbolized by a key. It would say a key was laid upon your back or laid upon your shoulders. Listen to Isaiah twenty-two, twenty-two. I will place the key of the house of David on his shoulder. What he opens, no one can close. What he closes, no one can open. So we understand that it's not just about the oppressive feel of having a government tell you what to do, what you can't do. It's also just the weight of the, the, the government structure itself, the organization of, of government, the, the, the rule and reign King David had a government, and that government was on upon the shoulders of Jesus. It rested upon the promises of God through the prophets that there would be one day a Messiah to come and rule over in the place of the throne that David represented. We see in Matthew 28, 18, one of my favorite uh, problems that I've pointed out. When I was young, we, we learned the great commission as Matthew 28, 19, and 20. But if you don't learn 18, you don't understand how you have the authority to do 19 and 20. Everybody with me? Go ye therefore makes no sense unless you know what power and authority you are going ye therefore with. And here it is: Jesus came near to the disciples and he said, "All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth." Going back to Isaiah twenty-two twenty-two, what he opens, no one can close; what he closes, no one can open. Why? Because he has all authority. He is the sovereign. He is the kingdom. He is the government. He is the ruler. Daniel 2.44, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, and this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. That's the difference between the kingdom of God and every other kingdom that has ever existed or will ever exist on this planet. You go back in the history, and you'll find all these great big empires that reigned. The sun never sits on the Roman Empire. The sun never sits on the, the, the uh, British Empire. And what has happened to them? Go look up all the different kings that have ever, ever existed. You know what happened? They died and they had to hand that kingdom over to somebody else. They were either torn down and killed in a coup or they lived and died and handed their kingdom off to a, ch- a child or somebody else. But it's always a handoff. It's, always, it's either taken away from you militarily or it's given over when you die. The kingdom of God is not like that. We have one ruler. We will always have one ruler. We have always had one ruler. He will never hand it off. He will never hand it down. And he will never hand it over. And I want you to hear me. He's not going to hand it over to you either. Sometimes we like to think, well, God's not going to hand over the rule of his kingdom to Satan. You're right. But listen, listen now. I'm trying not to meddle. It's close to Christmas, Neil. I'm trying to be good. Sometimes you want to run things and you need to know your role and shut your hole. You need to understand that when you try to usurp the authority of God in your life, you are trying to make him hand his kingdom over to you. If you have surrendered yourself to Christ, you have professed a faith in him as your Lord and Savior, you are not the boss. He won't hand it over to Satan, but don't you dare for a minute think he'll hand it over to you. It reminded me when I was thinking about that concept of Revelation 5. And some of y'all are getting biblical whiplash this morning. I know we're just going to cover all of it. I hope y'all ain't got a crock pot. I mean, a, a pot roast in the oven. I hope whatever you're cooking is in a crock pot. In Revelation 5, we see John coming. He, he, he sees this thing acting out, this, this vision. And there's no one that can open this scroll, this important scroll they need to open and they need to read. Nobody's available. Nobody can open it. And John weeps. His vision is so real and this situation is so traumatic that he begins to weep and sob because nobody can open the scroll. And then in verse 5 of Revelation 5, he sees the line of Judah. In verse 6, he sees the lamb that looked as if he had been slain. And they said that this one, the line of Judah, the lamb of God, was worthy to open the scroll. I want you to hear me this morning. When they needed somebody to do the important things of leadership, they needed somebody to rule, they needed somebody to open the scroll, they needed somebody good enough, strong enough, powerful enough, kingly enough. They didn't look to a donkey. They didn't look to an elephant. They didn't look to a king or a president. They didn't look to a congress or a cabinet. They looked to the line of Judah and the Lamb of God, and you had better do the same. In verses 9 and 10, it says the living creatures and elders sang to him, and they sang this, "'You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered, "'and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. "'You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth.'" Then it countless thousands and thousands upon thousands with a loud voice in verse 12 say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Every creature in the universe then said in verse 13, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And then verse 14, they do in heaven in John's vision what you and I better do every single day of our lives When we recognize the authority of the king and his kingdom, the gift that he is and the government that he represents, we will do what they did in verse 14, Revelation 5. We will fall down and we will worship. And I'm ready. There are four couplets we see here following these verses. And a lot of times in some of the older translations, sometimes they would separate the first one. They would say, he is called Wonderful, comma, Counselor, comma. But I think through my study, I would say the best representation is to remove that first comma because there's four couplets of descriptors about who he is. And, and just let me throw this out there for free. Uh, Isaiah 7.14, his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. I've heard people say, well, if his name was to be called Emmanuel, then how is his name Jesus. His angel told him to be Jesus. Emmanuel does not uh, a name like John or, or Paul or Tony or Bill. It's, it's, it's a descriptor. Emmanuel means God with us, and I'm so thankful that that is a descriptor of our Jesus. And also we see that same kind of concept used here. These four couplets are descriptors of Jesus and talk about the king that he is when we see him in that manger. The first one is he'll be called Wonderful Counselor. This denotes a divine plan. You could read it this way. He is a wonder of a counselor. That word wonder is Pele in the Hebrew, and it means miracle or marvelous thing, something incomprehensible. And and I looked for other uses of it, and I found this interesting. In Judges 13, 18, we see uh, this angel talking to Samson's father, and they're having this discussion about what Samson's going to be. And the dad, Samson's dad, says, what's your name? And listen to this response. This is really interesting to me. Judges 13, 18, why do you ask my name? The angel of the Lord asked him, since it is beyond understanding. That's similar, that's a similar phrasing to what we see for wonderful counselor. It's incomprehensible, it's divine, it's it's amazing. In ancient Israel, a counselor was portrayed as a wise king. So he is not only a wise king, he is so wonderful that it's incomprehensible how wise a king, a counselor he is. Secondly, he refers to him there as a mighty God. This conveys military prowess or power. But it's interesting beyond just what it conveys. It's interesting because of what it represents. I want you to listen now. In Isaiah 9, where we are reading today, he is referring to the coming Messiah, this Jesus Christ that we're looking at in the manger this morning as the mighty God. But listen, a chapter later, listen. Here's what Isaiah says in chapter 10, verse 21. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Listen to me. Don't miss this. He is in two different chapters back to back referring to the Messiah and Yahweh himself as mighty God. Let there be no discussion or disagreement or misunderstanding. He is representing here that Jesus is God. The word almighty is referred to Jesus applied to him in Revelation 1.18. I'm the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. In Revelation 19, 16, it says that Jesus has a name that is written on his robe. And here's the name, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is God. Brother Kevin, explain to us the Trinity. Maybe next week. Maybe not. Number three, Everlasting Father. This expresses the eternality of his love. You can read that as the originator or the source of eternity. Kings would be referred to as father of those who they ruled. You know, if this person was the king of Egypt, he would be referred to sometimes as the father of Egypt. Even though he didn't procreate all of the people of Egypt, because of his position and his authority, they would refer to him sometimes as father. And this is the same concept we see here. He is the everlasting, the eternal father, king, ruler. He's the father of eternity. He's the initiator or author of time itself. Everlasting equals eternal. That's who he is. So he is the very mechanism... Of creation. He, he is the originator of time and space and matter. How can he be that if he was born in a manger? Because he was born in a manger to a virgin by God's grace, through the Holy Spirit, he still is and was and will be God. Listen to John 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, talking about Jesus, the Lagos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. He is God. Number four, the last one, he is Prince of Peace. This describes the quality of. Of his reign. Eternal Father speaks to the the quantity, the the distance, the limits, and this is talking about the quality. This child in this manger that we're looking at this morning will one day end all wars, he will end all strife, he will initiate an eternal peace. Uh, Andrew Davis, a commentator, said this it means he will be a ruler who brings peace and is characterized by peace. It's not just what he does, it's who he is. Shortly before he was betrayed and arrested and crucified, Jesus told his disciples this in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. And I do not give as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. And then when we see Jesus return and speak to his disciples again the night after his resurrection, he makes three statements or or this one statement three different times in John 20. Listen to me. 19, 21, 26. Look it up. Peace be with you. Before he was crucified, he told them, I'm giving you peace. And then when he returned after rising from the dead, he said, How, you still got that peace? I gave it to you. I told you to hold on to it. I hope you have because you're going to need it for the purposes that I've got for you coming up. Romans five one tells us that since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hear me this morning, if you've never surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, I'm not talking about church membership, I'm not talking about a baptism, I'm talking about a VBS where you walked forward and shook a preacher's hand or said some little cute prayer, but you've been living like hell the rest of your life. I'm talking about you are blood-bought, sold out, submitted and surrendered to the Lordship of Christ to do whatever He asks you to do, whenever He asks you to do it, for as long as He asks you to do it. If you have not done that, you cannot have peace with God. You can take a pill. You can go to a counselor. You can get help. You can do any of that stuff. You are never going to find peace until you surrender to Christ. Why? Because he is the one who makes peace. We have peace with God Through our Lord Jesus Christ. I talked about it last week. What will you do when you're broken? You'll seek God. You'll talk to good friends. You'll seek professional help. You will recognize your position and his position. Here's the premise. If you do all of that stuff but you've never submitted yourself to Christ, you're still going to be troubled. You're still going to be broken. You're still going to be addicted. You're still going to be in turmoil because you will not have peace because peace is not made available to you until you submit to the Lordship of Christ. He's the one who brings peace. He's the one that allows us to have peace with God. The meaning of peace here is much deeper, more foundational than we commonly use it. It reflects, quote, the spiritual harmony brought about by an individual's restoration with God. Listen, y'all know my story. I'm not going to give my whole testimony this morning. But I have made a profession of faith that is as a young, at a young age. Uh, Y'all know I had a drug problem when I was a kid. My mama drug me to church every time the doors were open. I was the only boy in seventh grade in WMUs. I was at church all the time. I made a profession of faith, but I never lived like it. In my heart, I know, looking back, I was lost. I mean, I was lost. And I had to come to the realization that I was troubled and upset and burdened and I couldn't find peace and I couldn't find rest because I had no relationship with the Father because I'd never submitted to the Son. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Don't worry about anything but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Listen. And the peace of God which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If you're not at peace this morning, friend, check your relationship with Christ. We look in the manger and we see the king, but that also makes us look to number two, the kingdom. In verse seven, the CSB says, the dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. I like that translation, but I also like this one, the NASB. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Now, you may look at that and say, well, how, how can that be the same? How can they translate those the same? The word prosperity in the Hebrew that is translated as prosperity in the CSB can mean prosperity, but it is shalom. I heard a few grunts and some little light bulbs came on. So what does the word shalom mean? Peace. So some translations say peace and some say prosperity. You may find one that says welfare. Here's the premise. Only God can provide us a kingdom that has prosperity and welfare and peace eternally. The word dominion there is misra. It means an empire. The word vast is marbe, and it means increasing. So it is an empire that is ever increasing in its peace. Nobody else caught that? Name me one other empire that has ever existed on this planet that that increased or expanded because of peace. You see, that's not how we operate. As human beings, we don't find peace until we have conquest. Only through all out victory can we have peace. Only uh, empires and kingdoms that the, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, they spread out through war. Our God's kingdom is a kingdom that is vast, and its peace will increase, and its size will increase. I think part of this, too, is when we get our glorified body, and I'm ready for that, too. Mine's breaking down like, whoo, man, you know, my my body right now is that car that just went over that warranty number. You ever had that? Hey, my warranty is full coverage up to 48,000 miles, 48,012. This just starts breaking down. That's me. But I want the glorified mind. Here's what I have come to understand. And the more I study this, the more I'm convinced. When we get a glorified mind, all the stuff we went through will make perfect sense. All, of this, all the calamity that we see on earth will make sense when we have our glorified body and our glorified mind. But God is so vast that I believe that even when we get to heaven, even when we have that glorified mind and we have a better understanding, we will continue to grow in our knowledge and understanding of how awesome he is. Don't miss that. He is so awesome that even with the best we can do, we will still be figuring things out and our worship will continue for eternity because it will never grow dull because we will never get to a point where we'll say, okay, I've, I've closed the book. I've got all of God that I can get. I understand all that I'm going to understand and I, I can appreciate him no more. His kingdom, his dominion will be vast and the, the prosperity, the peace will never end. It's an ever-increasing empire marked by the peace and welfare among its citizens. So there will be dominion. The first thing we see is dominion. The second thing we see is dominance. It says he will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Jesus will reign on the throne forever. Earthly kings are always susceptible susceptible to be overthrown, but not Jesus. Satan tried that. Lucifer was one of the most beautiful angels. Some say he was the worship leader. (laughs) Let me just step over here for a minute. (laughs) Now, Lucifer was one of the most beautiful angels, and he was serving God, and he was there. And here's the problem. He started reading his own press clippings. He started thinking, you know what? I think I could be God. I think I could do it better than he could do it. And he tried to overthrow the government in heaven. And a third of the angels follow. You talk about picking the wrong horse. Man, in the, in the annals of poor decisions on who we're gonna follow, that's right up there. You see, his dominion will have dominance, there will be no overthrow of his kingdom because it is a, number three, dynasty. It says to establish and sustain it, talking about his his kingdom, his empire, his, his dominion, to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. Justice and righteousness, those are interesting words when you see them together. In Isaiah 32, 16, 33, 5, 59, 14, you see those same two words. These nouns are used to show how God is going to rule, and it's only God that can rule in this manner. Earthly kings are established and sustained with power plays and politics, but His kingdom, He will establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness. Perfect justice, in other words, you are under Christ and you are forgiven. You're a child of God and you get to have that kind of relationship with Him. But if you're Lucifer and you try to break away and overthrow, you gotta go. That's perfect justice. By the way, justice is not you did something wrong, but I'm gonna let you stay. You did something wrong, so you've got to leave. That's not how that works. That's human justice. We 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 don't we don't do a good job of really justice the way it's supposed to be. We're influenced by our own feelings. God is not. God says, I'm perfect and just and holy and righteous. And you break my covenant. You walk away from me. You try to overthrow my kingdom and put yourself on the throne. You're kicked out. And if you submit to me, you're in. Justice and righteousness. So not only the, the domain, I'm sorry, the dominion, the dominance, the dynasty, but also the determination. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. The word zeal there is kenah, and it can mean enthusiasm or passion. So uh, this was an interesting thing to me. When I was reading and trying to study this, there are not a lot of commentaries that really speak a lot about this part of the verse. Uh, The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this, and they're like, moving on. And I'm I'm sitting there reading going, no, I want to know more about this. Tell me more about this this zeal and, and, and how it will accomplish it. The establishment of earthly kingdoms depends on the sustainability of the conflict or the commitment of military men. That's where we are really blessed and fortunate because God's commitment, His sustainability is eternal. He's never going to give up on us. He's never going to give up on His kingdom. Listen to Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. I am God, there is none other. I am God, and there is no one like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not done yet, saying my plan will take place, and I will do all my will. That's what God has said. I'm going to establish my kingdom. I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do, and I'm going to establish it, and you can trust it because I will do all my will. Here's the premise God keeps his promises. Anybody ever been lied to? Anybody ever been lied to by somebody that you really trusted? That stinks, doesn't it? You just have that moment where you're like, man, I really trusted this person and they have just straight up lied to me. God never does that. He keeps all of his promises. And you may be sitting here today going, Brother Kevin, how do we know? I'm so glad you asked. Look at 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 56. 1 Kings 8, 56. This is Solomon speaking to the people at the dedication of the temple. He says, not one of all the good promises he made, talking about God, through his servant Moses, has failed. Joshua 23, 14, this is Joshua who was one of the great men of the Bible, led them into the promised land. He is nearing the end of his life and he makes this statement to the people. None of the good promises the Lord your God made to you has failed. Everything was fulfilled for you. Not one promise has failed. First Samuel, where Samuel is speaking to King Saul and he says, The eternal one of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not man who changes his mind. And then you may say this ridiculously ignorant statement that I hear time and time again, well, there are two different gods in the Bible, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament. Let, let me, all right, time out. Pause the sermon. We got, y'all, we, let me save y'all some trouble. You can say a lot of stuff you want to about the Bible. You can say a lot of stuff you want to about God. You, you can sit over there in your wrongness and be as wrong as you want to be. But please don't say something as ridiculous and ignorant and stupid as there are two gods. The God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. No, you have a poor understanding of the God of the Bible if you think there are two different gods. We see the grace of God lavishly flooding in Isaiah. He didn't have to send you a king. He didn't have to come and take flesh and walk among you. He could have said, I had a covenant, I had a rule, you broke it, you go. You see God's grace. So you may be looking, oh, 1 Kings 8, Joshua 23, 1 Samuel 15. Oh, that's okay. That's the Old Testament. We ought to unhook from the Old Testament. Eh. Let me give you a couple of New Testament verses. Paul writing to his protege, Titus. He says, in the hope of the eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Hebrews 6, 18 and 19, it's impossible for God to lie. Verse 19, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul Firm and secure. Why? Because the God of the Old Testament kept his promises. And the God of the New Testament will continue to keep his promises. Why? Because it's the same God. We've looked into the manger, we've looked at the king and the kingdom. And we've talked a little bit about this, the, the the dichotomy between looking at God and his kingdom versus earthly kingdom and kingdoms and earthly rulers. But I'll, I I want to close this way. I want to kind of walk through some some. Them and him, okay? I'm going to give you some they talking about the, the human rulers that we have seen and, and, and really to be honest that any of us would be. If you got elevated to a ruler of the country and you were a dictator over America, you would be just as fallible as anybody else would be. You would be just as likely to be susceptible to your own pride and your own flesh as anybody else would be, but God is different. His king is a different king. Listen, human rulers want servants to serve them, but Jesus was the servant that served others. Matthew twenty-eight. Uh, Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. They want people to kiss their feet. Jesus washed feet. John 13, 5. They push in, in pride for wars so they can expand their power and their kingdom. Jesus will bring perfect, eternal peace to those Who love Him? Romans 5.10, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. They are consumed with money. Uh, They can never have enough. Jesus wasn't. Matthew 8.20, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. They have beautiful palaces and and the White House and and they have a a house at Martha's Vineyard and they have one down at the beach and, and they have all this money and all this fame and all these wonderful luxurious places and the Son of Man had no place to lay His head. The higher up they go, the higher up earthly rulers go, the less accessible they are. Go find some guy that was like county commissioner in Podunk County, Tennessee. You can go there and eat supper with him. You can go by the house and sit on his porch and talk to him. If that guy becomes governor, good luck. If he becomes president, forget about it. The higher up they go, the less accessible they are. (laughs) Jesus is at the pinnacle of the universe, and he is still truly Emmanuel God with us Isaiah 7:14 They want to expand their power at all costs but Jesus came to seek and to save the lost Luke 19:10 So here's I like to boil this down I don't always do a great job of this maybe I didn't today but I want to boil this down to one question Who will we look to for our peace and our purpose when we look into that manger, when we take time this Christmas to take our eyes off of the gifts and the meals and the fellowships and the family gatherings, we, we take our time off the vacation time and the time away, and we really just look into that manger. When we do that, we have to ask ourselves this question. Who are we going to look to for our peace? Are we going to look to the government? Are we going to pick a political side and follow them? I was reminded last week as we celebrated the, the uh uh, beginning of uh, World War II, the, the attack on Pearl Harbor. I was reminded when I, heard, I listened to the president give his speech before Congress, and, you know, they remember the speech, this will be a day that lives in infamy, and everybody applauded when he talked about we're going we're going to fight back and we're going to go to war, and they all applauded. I thought, man, could we even have that nowadays? We are so divided. It's like we... We don't have, I can't have friends that are Democrats if I'm a Republican. I can't have friends that are Republican if I'm a Democrat. Why? Because we've let our politicians divide us to the point that we can't see the humanity in people that don't agree with us. And so some today, that's what they try to do. They want you to be so desperate that you think you have to look to them. You have to side with them. You have to party with them. To have peace, are you going to look to them for your peace? Are you going to look to a political party or a political figure for your peace? Can I tell you that is a futile endeavor? They're not trying to bring you peace, they're trying to take your peace away. They're trying to take what you can give them and never give you anything in return. Maybe you're going to look to your guns or your property or your status or your bank account or your 401k or your title. That's not going to bring you peace. When we look into that manger this morning, I want us to look at the king. I want us to consider the kingdom, and I want us to make the decision that we're going to find our peace in him. Not just at Christmas, but every single day of our lives. If you've never confessed Christ as your Lord and Savior, I beg you to do that today so that you can know his peace. If you have done that, but you've walked away from that commitment and you're not living right with God, that's why you're not at peace now. Some of you are worried and can't figure out why your life is in turmoil and you're living in blatant disobedience to the God that you've committed your life to and you you just got to get that right or peace will never come. Maybe there's somebody here today that you have a broken relationship with somebody in your life and you don't have peace because you can't make peace with them. The invitation is the time for you to be obedient to whatever the Spirit is moving on you to do. And I beg you to do that today. Would you stand with me? I'm going to say a quick prayer. When I say amen, if you need me to pray with you, if you need to come make a profession of faith, something like that, uh, Grayson's going to be available, Austin. If you need somebody to pray with you, when I say amen, you move. Don't wait. Don't look around. It doesn't matter what somebody else is doing. If God's moving in your life, if the Holy Spirit is convicting you of something you need to deal with, when I say amen, you move. Let's pray. God, thank you for your peace. Thank you for the peace that you gave to my life. I, my life was in turmoil. God, I was a mess. And still am apart from you. Thank you for bringing peace to me the day that I surrendered my life to Christ. I pray if there's anybody here today that hasn't done that, today would be the day of salvation. For those who have done that but are living in turmoil, turmoil because they're living by their own standards, or not committed to you, I pray that you would reconcile that relationship, bring them back to you. God, I pray that you would help us, the church, to be people of peace, to live in this crazy, chaotic world, walking in the peace of God, the peace that passes all understanding. Whatever you want to do today, God, I surrender this time to you. I pray that you would use it. Your spirit has control. Your son, Jesus, is our king. God, move in this place for your purposes, and we'll give you praise. In Christ's name, amen.